Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about a series of operations that were conducted by the Norwegian resistance and the Allies during the Second World War. And these operations were aimed at disrupting Nazi Germany's ability to produce heavy water. Now, rather uninventively, these operations have become known as the, uh, well, as you can tell by the uh, the podcast title here, Norwegian Heavy Water Sabotage, a, a name that, na- that, that, you know, I guess it makes up for a lack of creativity with, with an abundance of accuracy. So it's a bit of a trade-off there. Anyway, what happened was this. There was a hydroelectric plant in Norway, roughly situated between Bergen and Oslo, and it was capable of producing heavy water. Now, heavy water, as you might already know, it's used in nuclear reactors. I don't really understand why. I did some reading about it, but it all involved, you know, involved stuff about hydrogen isotopes and bloody phrases like infrared, bloody spectroscopy. So I struggle enough with history, which is perhaps the second biggest joke of the academic world behind, I don't know, probably literary studies or something like that. So nuclear chemistry is right out here. Anyway... Heavy water, bloody important, that's the takeaway. And when Norway fell to the Nazis, the Allies didn't want this production facility helping to power up the Nazi nuclear program. So what followed was a a long campaign to take the plan offline and deal with its stocks of heavy water. And the lengths that the Norwegian resistance the Allies went to was, was actually, it was quite extraordinary. Um, I had a great time reading about this whole thing. Uh, special thanks go to alert listener, uh, no, actually, you know what? Not even going to try. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to get my mate Adrian to do this. My mate Adrian is uh, married to a Dane, so I'm going to get him to uh, to take care of this name here because uh, I'm just going to absolutely butcher it. So special thanks go to... Birke Uhlenschleyer. Who emailed him with the suggestion to have a look at this uh, the story of the Norwegian heavy water sabotage. And a very interesting story it is too, so let's get across. I hope you enjoy it. It's a bloody good one. Let's get into it and find out exactly what went in, uh, went on with all this uh, this uh, this heavy water plant nonsense and, uh, and all the rest of it. So... Going all the way back to the 1930s here, all the way back to the 1930s, uh, when there are a bunch of scientists at this point, they were busy trying to uh, unlock the power of the atom using nuclear fission. Again, look, I, you know, I'll be upfront and saying I'm not an expert on this sort of thing, but basically it, uh, a nucle- nuclear fission involves some kind of uh, chain reaction that has to be moderated or, or controlled in some way in order to... Uh, look, honestly, I, I don't even know. The point is here, the heavy water is a very important, uh, important part of this because it acts as what's known as a, a neutron moderator. It slows down fast neutrons, which according to Wikipedia can... Uh, propagate a nuclear chain reaction of uranium-235 or other fissile isotope by, oh no, I've gone cross-eyed. I should have just gone down the usual route of just making a dumb joke about, all right, um, let's give that a go instead. So it's, um, what they need, why, why do they, they have heavy, heavy water, why didn't they, they could use light, light water, difficult to carry all the, all the heavy, never mind, all right, okay, the point is, in order to create heavy water, Norway outfitted a hydroelectric plant they already had called Vermork to start making heavy water in the mid-30s. Now, this heavy water was initially going to be made available to science, scientists around the world as they continue to you know, experiment with nuclear technology. But obviously, as the Second World War is approaching, uh, this became... Uh, Less uh, less than ideal uh, to you know to be to be propagating uh, nuclear technology of this kind around the world. So in early 1940, with the war technically underway but not yet being fought as ferociously as it would be, of course, 
Vermork was still receiving orders for heavy water from both the Allies and the Axis powers here. Now, Norway was supposedly a neutral nation at this point in early 1940, and you'll understand why I say supposedly after hearing what happened next, because before the invasion of Norway in April 1940, the Deuxième Bureau, which is the French military intelligence, right, they got in touch with the company that ran the plant, Norsk Hydro, to see if they would be willing to deny Nazi access to Vermorck's stocks of heavy water. Now, the director of Norsk Hydro, he's a bloke named Axel Orbert, right? He he agreed to lend, quote-unquote, lend France the plant's entire stock of heavy water for the duration of the war. Now, this was an incredibly brave thing to do. Again, in name at least, Norway was neutral. This was a clear violation of their neutrality, giving over strategic assets, strategic resources across there like this. Clear and flagrant breach of neutrality. And, of course, he knew, Axel knew, that if he were ever caught by the Nazis, if he were ever captured and they found out what he'd done, he would be executed for it quick as winking. So good on you, Axel, old son. You've done a good thing there by, uh, by you know, agreeing to uh, hand it over to the Allies. Anyway, despite Norsk Hydro agreeing to hand over the heavy water, it wasn't as simple as that. Because even if Norway hasn't yet been invaded, it was still full of Nazi spies uh, as the Abwehr, the Nazi military intelligence. It was swarming through the country and, uh, you know, keeping an eye out for any kind of enemy or hostile activity. And while they weren't on the lookout specifically for plots to transport a great big shipment of heavy water... Nonetheless, if they got wind of the French trying to move basically anything around in Norway, they obviously would have tried to stop it from happening. So the French have to be very careful about this. They deploy three of their agents to smuggle the entire stock of heavy water out of Norway and into Allied territory. And it's worth pointing out that this stock of heavy water was more or less all the heavy water that existed in the entire world. There are 185 kilograms of it. Pretty bloody heavy. Oh, thank you. Uh, And the French had to work very carefully to get it out of Norway uh, without being noticed. The water was first taken to Oslo, and then it was snuck out on a ship to Scotland, where it landed safely in Perth, before being uh, taken on to France itself. However, it wasn't long after this, of course, you'll be counting down the days, counting down the months here. Uh, It wasn't long after this that Norway was invaded and fell to the Nazis in April. And of course, by June 1940, France had gone the same way. And when France was uh, was looking like it was going to fall, the stock of heavy water was in the care of a, of a French nuclear scientist named Frédéric Joliot-Curie. Now, of course, that Curie, uh, that Curie last name will be very familiar to you. He was the wife of Irene Joliot-Curie and the son-in-law of the famous scientists Marie and Pierre Curie. Now, these names will obviously be very familiar to you, especially Marie and Pierre Curie. And all four of those people, by the way, Marie, Pierre, Frédéric and Irene, they all won at least one Nobel Prize. And that's not to mention another son-in-law of Marie and Pierre who won a Nobel Prize for uh, a, a peace prize, a Nobel Peace Prize. So quite an accomplished family there, you'd think. Anyway, Frederick hid the water in a bank vault initially and then moved it to a prison. He's obviously trying to keep it as safe as possible. And he, he, did, he did exactly this. He, he managed to keep it safe until there was an opportunity to evacuate it entirely from an increasingly occupied France. And it was on the 13th of June in 1940 that the SS Broompark uh, took the heavy water, along with several million pounds in diamonds, I might add, uh, along with some other valuable cargo scientists, refugees, whatever else, to the United Kingdom, where it was then used as part of the UK's own program to develop nuclear weapons. Uh, although rather than a cool name, this program wasn't, you know, rather cool name like the Manhattan Project. Uh, the, the Britons, uh, instead, they named their operation Tube Alloys. Which I guess, I mean, look, if you're trying to divert attention away from a very sensitive operation, I guess you do give it a boring name like Tube Alloys. I guess that was, you know, the genius behind the name all along. Anyway, so far, 
things have gone about as uh, about as well as they, as as could be hoped when it comes to all this heavy water. The heavy water had been taken; it had been kept out of the hands of the Nazis, been taken away, and it arrived safely in Britain when France fell. However, there is still a problem: Vermork is still capable of creating more heavy water. This plant up in the Norwegian mountainsides is still up and running. And the Allies, they don't have a complete picture of what the Nazi nuclear program is, what it looks like, you know, and what their ambitions are. But they do know that heavy water, of course, is going to be essential to its success. And so as a result, they are very keen to prevent the Nazis from getting their hands on heavy water at all. Given that Vermork was basically the only place on Earth where heavy water could be made at this stage, it's a pretty big problem that it's in the hands of the Nazis. Now, the British, therefore, they begin to pull together a plan to decommission Vermork once and for all and prevent the Nazis from creating any heavy water for themselves. This plan had two parts. The first one was codenamed Operation Grouse and the second Operation Freshman. And it was overseen by the Combined Operation Headquarters, which was a division that specifically carried out raids against the Nazis on the continent. Now, the plan was going to be this. They, would, they were going to send in a group of Norwegian resistance, uh, resistance fighters to carry out reconnaissance and whatever else, and then would drop in a detachment of British engineers to sabotage the plant using military gliders for a stealthy approach there. Now, the Combined Operations Headquarters, they enlisted the help of the Special Operations Executive, a top-secret organisation that had been set up to carry out espionage and sabotage. Not people, not, not many people knew that the SOE even existed. It had a bunch of different names that it was sort of euphemistically referred to. There were boring ones like the Joint Technical Board or the Inter-Service Research Bureau, as well as some very cool ones like the Baker Street Irregulars or my favourite, the Ministry for Ungentlemanly Warfare. Uh, in any case, the British managed to smuggle four Norwegian resistance fighters out of Norway and brought them back to the UK for training at the hands of the SOE, training in the arts of ungentlemanly warfare. Now, these blokes' names, they were Knut Haugland, Klaus Helberg, Anna Kjellstrup and Jens Anton Poulsen. And these blokes were given, I'll tell you what, they were given a baptism of fire. They were, they were taking, they took an extremely bloody intense crash course up in Scotland, climbing mountains, swimming across rivers, sleeping outside, you know, all, all that sort of survival stuff. And generally being hardened for the very stressful, very dangerous work that was to come once they were, uh, once they were deployed back in, uh, back in Norway. So once these Norwegian commanders were ready, they boarded a British plane. And on the 19th of October in 1942, they parachuted back into Norway. They had to ski quite a distance to, to uh, Vermork. And the British began to get quite worried and a little bit suspicious when they didn't hear from their operatives for quite some time. Because they're thinking, what if they've been captured and killed? Or perhaps they've been tortured and forced to turn against the Allies even worse. The British waited and waited and waited and their patience was ultimately rewarded because the Norwegians, they'd been dropped into the wrong place. They'd had a hard time making it safely to, uh, to the area surrounding Vermork, but they had done it. They got there, they got in touch with the British to relay the information. They'd gathered the intelligence that they'd, uh, they'd sort of uh, they'd, they'd pulled together about the plant. And now the next phase was ready to, uh, to, go, uh, to be put underway. So exactly a month after the Norwegians had parachuted into Norway, the next phase of the plan is put into action, Operation Freshman. The plan was to tow gliders across to Norway and have British engineers make stealthy landings on a frozen lake before being escorted to Vermork by these Norwegian commandos. And so on the 19th of November, two British bombers took off, towing a military glider each, full of the British engineers who would go on to sabotage the plant. But unfortunately, 
the conditions for this flight were quite bad. It was a longer flight than you than you usually take with uh, you know these tugs pulling gliders, and on top of that the visibility was very bad indeed. It was so bad, in fact, that one of the bombers tragically went off course and flew into the side of a mountain, killing everyone on board. Now, the glider, it's, it, it did its best to cast off and avoid the wrecking, wreckage, but it also crash-landed, and this resulted in the deaths of some more of the crew aboard, although some of them did luckily survive. The other bomber, it managed to make it to the area around the frozen lake, but due to the horrific conditions and the failure of, uh, of ground-to-air communications, they couldn't find the landing zone. So after quite a number of attempts, the bomber pilot declared that it would be impossible to have the glider land safely in these conditions and so gave up, aborted, turned the plane around and flew back to Britain. Unfortunately, however, it only got worse from there because the conditions deteriorated even further as the bomber turned around and, 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 and uh, you know, set, set sail for home. And after some strong winds and some turbulence, the tow cable between the bomber and the glider, it snapped. And this meant that the second glider plummeted down to earth and it crash landed not too far from the first, again, killing some of the people aboard. Now, the Norwegian commanders down on the ground, they realized what's happened. They did everything they could to rescue the survivors from the gliders, but they were beaten to the wreckages by the Gestapo. And unfortunately, all the survivors of, the, of, of these crashes, they were taken prisoner, they were tortured, and then they were executed. Now, this is obviously a war crime, but we are talking about actual literal Nazis here. So, I mean, you know, what did you expect? So, Operation Freshman was a near total failure, and it made the plan to take Vermork offline even more difficult than it was before. The Allies had lost the element of surprise, as, you know, after having captured and tortured the, the crash survivors, the Nazis were then assumed to have, uh, have, have, have managed to extract the information about the operation's objective and, uh, and the Allied plan to take out Vermorch. So now their hand has been tipped. The Allies have, uh, have lost the, as I say, the element of surprise as, as the Nazis now know what they're up to. So the Allies consider a range of different approaches. They consider just bombing the plant to oblivion and getting rid of it that way, but very swiftly realised that this plan isn't wasn't going to work because the plant was not only built a bit like a bit of a fortress on the side of a mountain. All of the heavy water production, right, it took place in its heavily fortified underground basement, which no amount of bombing would ever be able to destroy from the air. So. They didn't give up on destroying the Nazi source of heavy water, even despite the fact that you know, they weren't able to come up with, a, with, a, with a, a cheap and cheerful quick plan that was going to get it done here. But instead, after a lot of, a lot of thinking, a lot of uh, you know, problem solving and uh, a lot of hard work, they come up with a new plan, a new operation. This time, this one is, is codenamed Operation Gunnerside. Now, the poor Norwegian team, right, they're still there. The blokes from Operation Grouse, they're, they're still there on the ground as this operation, this new Operation Gunnerside is being cooked up. And they had to survive a brutal winter by themselves. I suppose it helped that they, you know, they were Norwegians. They were relatively local, basically born with skis on their feet. So they were able to, uh, you know, to uh, hide, themselves away, hide themselves away up there in the mountains. They ate moss and lichen and the occasional reindeer whenever they were lucky enough to come across one. But again, a very, very difficult, very unpleasant winter for them uh, hiding away there in the, in the Norwegian mountains. But meanwhile, back in Britain, the SOE was training seven more Norwegian commandos and equipping them with everything that they would need to take Vermork out of action as part of this new operation, Operation Gunnerside. Now, these blokes, they were named Knut Haukelid, Kaspar Idland, Frederick Kaiser, Joachim Ronneberg, uh, Hans Storhaug, Berger Strumsheim, and Leif Tronstad. And I do apologise to all of the Scando listeners here for the butchering of those names. Uh, but again, I can only blame my uh, my idiot uh, 
anglophone anglophonic upbringing uh, that prevents me from you know being a little more worldly in that uh, in that in that regard and also it's your fault for having letters that don't even make any sense what is this o what is this o with a with a with a with a cross through what, what does that even mean anyway on the 16th of february 19 i'm sorry for teeing off the norwegian language i'm sure i'm sure it's very beautiful anyway even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. On the 16th of February 1943, three months after the failed Operation Freshman, these new commandos, they parachute in and they meet with the other four. So we've got 11 crack troops here. They've all been trained to uh, trained to the gills here with uh, by, the, by the British and they are ready to rock and roll. So they had their supplies and their equipment airdropped to them in small containers called CLE canisters. And the commandos, they go around, they collect all of these, uh, or almost all of these canisters. One, actually, uh, it falls beneath the snow. It's buried underneath the snow and later discovered by uh, a Norwegian who, who hid it from the Nazis. The occupying Nazi buried it. And it's now on display in a museum in Britain. You can actually go and see one of the, one of the original KL, uh, CLE canisters that was dropped as part of this operation after it was hidden by the Nazis by that, uh, that Norwegian, uh, that bloke who found it there. Anyway, uh, after the commanders have gone around, they collected uh, all, these, uh, you know, all their supplies, all their equipment, the explosives, whatever else they need. They, uh, they make themselves ready for their attack on Vermorck. The problem was, however, that the Nazis, as you might expect, they had beefed up security quite considerably since the failed Operation Freshman. It was now floodlit, it had mines all around it, big barbed wire fences, and it was guarded by extra soldiers. However, however, the British had an ace in the hole. You might have remembered before that I mentioned that they knew that the heavy water production was done in the basement. How would they know something like that, I hear you ask? Well, they had a mole on the inside. They had an informant, an agent from within the plant itself who had managed to supply them with plans, maps, schedules, schematics, layouts, all sorts of other valuable information about about Vermorck from within the plant itself. So this extra intelligence was absolutely invaluable, not only because of, you know, the previous decisions made with the bombing runs, whatever else like that, but also because it furnished these operatives, these commanders, these Norwegians here, with the maximum amount of intelligence that they could possibly hope for as they made ready to assault this plant here. However, however, it wasn't quite as easy as all that, because Vermorck was on the other side of an enormous ravine, 75 metres wide, over 200 metres deep, with a river at the bottom of this enormously deep ravine. Now, there was a bridge, of course, that spanned the ravine that led to the plant, but as you might imagine, it was under heavy guard at all times in the wake of this attack, uh, or, you know, in the failed operation, in the wake of the failed Operation Freshman. As a result, these 11 brave Norwegian commandos, they decide to descend into the ravine. What a dangerous thing you'd be doing. Middle of winter here, of course, you're going 200 metres into, down into you know, a deep, freezing, freezing river there. Uh, risking your, risking life and limb in order to uh, complete this mission. But that is what they do. They decide they're going to descend into the ravine, swim across this freezing cold river, and approach the plant from below. Now, of course, as you as you can imagine, wild and potentially very dangerous plant, although probably wasn't as dangerous, to be, to be fair, as attempting to cross a heavily guarded bridge. Nonetheless, that was the plan they chose. And so on the night of the 27th of February 1943, the Norwegian commandos, they make their way down to the bottom of this ravine, 
they ford the freezing waters of the river below and they begin to sneak back up the side of the hill that led up to the plant. And their informant, of course, had given them this priceless information. They knew that there was a track that led up to an entrance into the basement via a cable tunnel. And so the commandos, they creep along, they're approaching the entrance, and luckily they didn't come across a single guard at any point. They successfully gained entrance to the basement of the plant, and it was there that they finally did run into someone. But no worries, it was a caretaker whose name was Johansson, and he was more than ready to help them out. He helped them through the plant to the electrolysis chambers where the heavy water was produced and the commandos, they got to work. They set up their powerful explosives that would destroy all of the equipment used to make heavy water and, very cleverly, they also planted a British Thompson machine gun, a Tommy gun, to make it seem like this had been done by the British alone and not with the aid of the Norwegian resistance. So it was a little bit of a, uh, well, you know, I wouldn't quite call it a false flag operation, but they definitely wanted to mislead the Nazis as they obviously, you know, would go on to investigate this uh, this big saboteur, sabotage operation here. But why? Why did they want to uh, to throw them off the track and, and, and have them, uh, you know, not think that the, the Norwegians were involved? Well, it was to avoid reprisals from the Nazis on the local Norwegians in case any of them were wrongly accused of, you know, aiding and abetting Norwegian saboteurs. They wanted to make it look like it had just been the Allies acting independently without Norwegian assistance. Now, you know, you might think of this, you know, this wasn't so much a take credit for a group project as it was, you know, if they find out you worked on this group project, they'll probably kill you. Uh, That's probably a better way to characterise the situation. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily the Allies sort of hunting for for glory, trying to take it off the the Norwegians. It was definitely trying to, you know, try to save lives. So it made a lot of sense to do this. Anyway... With the explosives ready and with this fake bit of evidence planted, the commandos, they set a fuse long enough to, uh, to give them time to escape and then they go to light it. But then the caretaker, he cries out, he says, stop. And they all the commandos, they think, what's this? Is he a turncoat? Is he a spy? Is he going to ruin the whole operation here at, this, at the most critical moment? Nope. He just couldn't find his, he couldn't find his glasses. He put them down somewhere. He wanted to make sure he had them before everything was blown to smithereens. So imagine this. One of the most delicate and sensitive sabotage operations of the Second World War. It was temporarily put on hold so this poor old caretaker can frantically look about a place, a place that is lined with explosives for his glasses. Now, you look. Fair enough, though. During the war, it was bloody hard to get a new pair of glasses. So you know, don't be hard on, on uh, don't be too hard on poor old Johansson. He didn't ask for any of this. He doesn't want to lose his glasses here. So anyway, they managed to safely find his glasses, and without any further ado, they light the fuse, they scarper, and they safely escape from the plant before the explosives go off. Now, these explosives completely destroy the electrolysis chambers, of course. They lay waste to the heavy water production facilities there. It destroyed the plant's entire capacity to make heavy water. And on top of that, also destroyed essentially the entire reserve of heavy water that the Nazis had already stockpiled. And they had been pooping out the stuff like there was no tomorrow. Over 500 kilograms of it was destroyed by this explosion. So, job bloody well done. And what's more... All 11 of the commandos successfully escaped unscathed. The Nazis, they mobilised 3,000 troops to hunt them down, but all of them got away scot-free. Two of them went to Oslo, where they continued their resistance work. Four stayed nearby to do the same, while the other five skied 400 kilometres to the border with neutral Sweden. So... Just as Operation Freshman had been a near-total failure, Operation Gunnerside had been a near-total success. Fantastic job. However, despite the devastating effectiveness of the raid, the plant had not been permanently destroyed. 
What's more, the Allies knew that another boots-on-ground sabotage attempt would be near impossible, as security at the plant at this stage now would have been bolstered enormously, making any kind of attempt like that very, very foolish, if not impossible. So this was a big problem, as the news that uh, was that the Nazis were busily repairing the heavy water facility and would have it back online within months. So, as a result... The old plan of bombing the plant was now brought back to the fore, and the US, who had always been very keen on the bombing plan, I have to say, they were prepared to mobilise their aircraft against the plant. The idea was to damage the whole plant, the entire facility beyond repair, now that the heavy water production uh, had been uh, destroyed properly in the basement. If they laid waste to the rest of the facility, hopefully the Nazis would give it up as a bad job. So... The Allies waited patiently for the Nazis to waste time and resources repairing the heavy, heavy water facilities, and then in November, more or less as soon as the plant was ready to start producing again, the USAAF began their raids. In November 1943, 143 bomb bombers were mobilised and over 700 bombs were dropped above the Mork. Only you know, 100 or so actually hit, but that's not the point. It was enough. The Nazis decided to give up on their ambitions to continue to produce heavy water, and by the end of the year, they had abandoned the plant entirely. However, it's not quite the end of the story, because there was one final effort for the Allies to make in preventing the Nazis any access whatsoever to heavy water. They've destroyed the uh, the production facility. They've destroyed the entire plant uh, to prevent it from being, uh, you know, made operational once again. You'd think the Nazis are, you know, are down for the count here, but the Allies, they want to make absolutely certain that this uh, this whole issue is put to bed here. So, one of the commandos... A bloke, uh, one of the bloke, you know, you remember his name from before when I when I mercilessly butchered it, uh, Knut Haukelid, right? He had remained behind near Vermork and he caught wind of a Nazi plan to transport the little remaining heavy water that they had back to Germany. After hearing this, the Nazis encouraged him to prevent this from happening. And so Haukelid, he put together a plan and pulled together a team and made ready to, uh, for, for one, he got the gang back together for one last job here, right? The Nazis would be transporting the heavy water on a lake, uh, across a lake, I should say, on a ferry, and that's where Halkalid decided to strike. One of the men on the team that Halkalid put together happened to be friends with one of the crew members of the ferry, and so he used him as a way to get aboard the ferry, sneak into the hold, and plant eight and a half kilograms of explosives on the bottom of the ship. Later, the ferry set off with its cargo, and shortly thereafter, the explosives blew it to bits. Now, unfortunately, of course, they did make an effort to to try to minimise the casualties of the people aboard the ship. But unfortunately, many innocent Norwegians died uh, as a result of this explosion there. Some of them did survive and managed to swim back to shore, but uh, some of them were forever, their lives were forever lost. So it was, you know, there was a real human cost to this operation here, and it's a great tragedy that that was the, uh, that was the collateral damage here. However... Amongst the wreckage of the ferry, of course, the heavy water was strewn around, useless, destroyed as it uh, was strewn across the lake. There, although you know, there, uh, apparently some of the barrels with heavy water in them were seen floating, which which doesn't make any sense, does it? Can't can't have been heavy water if it if it if it didn't sink. Probably not the best time to be making jokes about that sort of thing. No, look, in all seriousness, the barrels were only half full. Some of them were were probably salvaged, but for the most part, the Nazi stockpile of heavy water was now inconsequentially tiny. And, uh, and their attempts to manufacture nuclear weapons were now further destroyed. But before we wrap up this story, I think it's important to add a little bit of balance to it. Because the tale of the Norwegian heavy water sabotage, it's, it's often dressed up a little bit here. While the heavy water was essential uh, for the Nazis' plans to make nuclear weapons, and while the efforts of these Norwegian commanders and their allied partners was instrumental in denying them it, 
it wasn't the only thing that doomed the Nazi nuclear weapons program to failure. The Nazis were a long, long way from successfully manufacturing a, a nuclear bomb. That's been well and truly established by historians today. And even with access to heavy water, it's likely that something else would have uh, would have been, an, you know, something different would have been an impossible impossible barrier uh, to success for the Nazis there. In fact, when one of the uh, when one of the bar- barrels from the ferry was dredged up from the lake bed in two thousand and five, it was found that it wasn't even particularly pure heavy water, and that a best case scenario for the Nazis would have seen them only with ten percent of the heavy water that they needed for their weapons program. So they were a long way behind. It was very unlikely that they would ever succeed in in manufacturing nuclear weapons successfully. However. However, none of this is to take away from the achievements of the people who worked so hard and gave so much in order to well and truly hamstring any nuclear ambitions that the Nazis had. Those involved with Operations Grouse, Freshman and Gunnerside, they fought a secret and deadly fight against the Nazis. And some, those involved in Operation Freshman particularly, they paid the ultimate price. In doing so, their struggle against the spectre of growing Nazi power, risking their lives for the cause, it was ultimately an enormous success in more ways than one. Because not only did they undermine and sabotage the Nazi war effort to quite a significant degree, they also brought to light the nuclear ambitions of the Nazis. They brought this to light to the wider world. And of course, today, we know that thankfully, the Nazis were ultimately unsuccessful in their quest for nuclear power. And while that may not all be due to the brave actions of these Norwegian commandos campaigning selflessly in their occupied homeland, all the same, I don't think it's too much to say, bloody good on you blokes. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Norwegian heavy water sabotage. And of course, a special thank you goes to Bjerke Ullenschleer for sending it in as a topic suggestion. If you'd like to follow in the exalted footsteps of Bjerke Ullenschleer, you, of course, can get in touch with the show. Halfhousedhistory.net is the website and there's a contact form on it. And you can send in any suggestions there like that. I'm going to try to get a, be a little bit better with correspondence. I read every single email I receive, of course. Uh, I, I'm going to try to get a little bit better at replying to them, but again, it is it is difficult just the sheer volume of them. Um, uh, of course, on the website, you'll find links to subscribe to the show on Spotify or Android, or of course on iTunes, where you can also leave a review. Thank you so much to all the people leaving me the reviews. They're very, very in- I very much enjoy reading through them. It's uh, it's a, it's an enormous ego uh, ego booster there. Um, and of course, a special thank you go to the people supporting me on Patreon, in particular, my friends, the the very first executive producers of Half-Assed History, the newly anointed executive producer. There are seven of them. Dustin Cullerhall, Graham Keenan, Cameron Jackson, Sam Broderick, William Sides, Mikkel Rasmussen, and of course, Sirius. These people are the newly minted executive producers of the show, and they've got the business cards to prove it. So thank you so much for your ongoing support to, uh, to, to all of my executive producers and all of my patrons, and of course to you, just for listening to this stupid podcast every week, it's great to have you on board. If you want some swag, if you want some merch, some gear, uh, bigcartel.com slash half history is where you can find it. I'll send it out to you as soon as I get it. Uh, get, get your orders in quick. I'm going away in February, and so there'll be a delay of any orders placed in February. But if you get it in before then, I'll, uh, I'll get it off to you quick. Anyway, this has already gone on for ages. very boring. I'm sorry to the people who, uh, who, who are hanging around for, of course, the question posed on Reddit. This one... We've, uh, it's a science-based question rather than a history-based question. We talked a lot about heavy water, and I have utterly failed to come up with a good joke about it. But 
Fear not, because I found a cracker on Reddit posed by Reddit histor- Reddit scientist, I guess, uh, Slowshot, who asks, Can we increase the efficiency of nuclear reactors by replacing all of the heavy water with lighter fluid? 